something called the war in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is, um, is a pretty big chunk of the Bible. It's about three quarters of it. Um, but it's often misunderstood. One of our hopes as we go through Deuteronomy this semester is to help us understand the Old Testament rightly and, and to address some of the common pitfalls that we can fall into. So last week we looked at Deuteronomy 5 and the Ten Commandments. And we dealt with a common misunderstanding that pits law versus love. And we, uh, we saw that rather than God just caring about cold, rigid law observance, that rather than law versus love, it's actually law in service of love. That even the Ten Commandments were about helping God's people live lives of love in relationship with Him and those around them. So that was last week, law versus love. This week we're looking at law versus grace. Another common misunderstanding when it comes to looking at the Old Testament. And this is the idea that in the New Testament, we're saved by grace. But in the Old Testament, they were saved by law-keeping. The word grace means it's a free gift. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. And so the idea is that now in the New Testament, we're saved by grace, by receiving the gift of God through Jesus, which is true. But the idea is that back then it was all about Law-keeping and obedience and works righteousness, that's how you got saved. And Deuteronomy 6 is a great place to engage with this question because it's a place where the meaning of the law, not just the content, but the meaning of the law, is specifically addressed. So you've got a Bible in front of you. Have a look with me from verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. These are somewhat well-known verses. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So here we see that uh, loving God... Uh, is at the heart of the commandments, like we saw last week. But we also see in verses 7 to, to 9 that talking about the law and explaining it to one's children is, was part of the rhythm and fabric in everyday life of Israelite society. So imagine day in and day out over breakfast, over dinner, the Israelite parents teaching their children, you shall have no other gods before Yahweh, you shall not make idols, keep the Sabbath, don't murder, and so on. But while teaching them, day in and day out, the content of those laws is important, it's also critical to explain the meaning of those laws. So have a look at this key question that comes up in verse 20 of the passage that we just read. This is really important. It's easy to skirt over. Have a look in verse 20. It says, In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, blah, 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 which we'll have a look at in a moment. But first, feel the impact of the question. They're already learning the content. They're learning, maybe you could, you could memorize the Ten Commandments and still not understand what they actually mean, how they're meant to be understood. And the answer that the parents are to give their children is not what you f might at first expect. Check it out. Verse 21, look how they're meant to respond when the children ask about the meaning of God's law. This is the response. Say, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. 
The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Now, there are two key things to unpack about the meaning of the law that these verses show us. First, grace comes before law. And secondly, law is a further expression of grace. Let's have a look at each in turn. First up, grace comes before law. Now, when you look at the Father's answer in verses 21 to 25, at first it might seem like it's a bit of a non sequitur. He's asked about the meaning of the law and he just starts telling him a story. He's not addressing what the law is actually about. He's asking, Dad, what does the law mean? And the father starts telling him, we were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out. He sent these great and terrible signs. He brought us out from there. And you might think, what on earth does that have to do with the meaning of the law? But actually it has everything to do with the meaning of the law. What this is showing us is that the meaning of the law cannot be understood in a vacuum. It can't be understood. You can't understand the Ten Commandments in isolation. The Ten Commandments and the law as a whole can only be rightly understood when placed within the story of God saving his people. And the order of events is key. Notice that verses 21 to 23 describe God saving his people. And the emphasis is strongly on God's action. Uh, He's the active agent behind all the verbs that are happening. In verses 21 to 23, Israel doesn't do anything. They're just passive. God's the one taking the initiative. God's the one doing everything. It's God's gracious initiative. And it's only after that that finally in verse 24, you get the law. That the Lord commanded to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God. So what that shows is grace comes before law. It's not like God saw his people stuck in slavery in Egypt and said, here, follow these commandments, and if you do, if you obey them well enough, then I'll rescue you from Egypt. No, not at all. God graciously saved his people without them doing anything to earn it or deserve it. And actually, the rest of the Old Testament tells us that while they were in Egypt, they were even worshipping the Egyptian gods. It's not like they were even being faithful to him. And yet he graciously delivered them from Egypt. Grace comes before law. We're seeing this here in Deuteronomy 6, but it's also there in Deuteronomy 5. It's baked into the Ten Commandments themselves, especially the Zeroth Commandment, which I'll explain in a moment. Flip back to uh, Deuteronomy 5. Uh, We can see the Ten Commandments listed from verse 7 to 21. So the Ten Commandments themselves are in verses 7 to 21, but there in verse 6 is what some people call the prologue to the Ten Commandments. And it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So anytime you read Jeremy 5, anytime you read the Ten Commandments from verses 7 to 21, the things that Israel ought to do, they're first reminded of verse 6, what God has done. And... It's it's worth noting as well that uh, for Protestants, uh, we've numbered the Ten Commandments a certain way. Uh, For Jews, they actually number the Ten Commandments differently. They've They've got the same text in front of them. They've got the same Deuteronomy 5. But notice that in the text, the numbers aren't given. It doesn't say 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. So for the Jews, this is actually the first commandment. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. They merged these two to make it still be ten. But for them, the, the, the zeroth, or the first, the bedrock foundational word is God's prior grace. Grace comes before law. And this is emphasised not just in Deuteronomy 6, not just in Deuteronomy 5, but actually throughout Deuteronomy 6 to 11. So, for example, if you flip forward a few chapters, have a look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8. It says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you, because you are more numerous than other peoples, Israel, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, that he brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Notice, what's the reason that the Lord set his affection on them? Is it because they're impressive? The reason he set his affection on them is because he loves them. He loves them because he loves them. It's, it's not dependent upon anything they have done. He made an oath to Abraham, who was also worshipping pagan gods. God graciously intervened, made gracious, undeserved promises purely not on anything they did to, to merit it, but on his own decision. He loves them because of his love. And that's why he makes the promise that he then faithfully keeps. Again, uh, if you flip forward a little bit to Jeremy 9, check out Jeremy 9 from verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, these other nations, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore, what he promised to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness. He's really having to drum this in, isn't he? It's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. You have to be pretty uh, thick-skulled as an Israelite to think, yeah, I think, I think I'm in relationship with God because of my righteousness. I think this is all about law-keeping. No, what this is really drumming home is that grace comes before law. It's not salvation before works. Even in the Old Testament, it is grace that is the operating principle in Israel's relationship with God. Okay, so that's the first big point, grace becomes before law. But you might say, okay, well, maybe grace started it off, but then once law was introduced, then it became about a relationship of legalism. It started with law, but then d d descends into, it started with grace rather, but then descends into law. But no, that brings us to our second point, which is that the law is actually a further expression, an extension of God's grace. Let's come back to that key passage that we're looking at in Deuteronomy 6, 21 to 25, the answer on the meaning of the law. Check it out. It says, The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. So yes, here the law enters the scene, but notice the purpose of the law. Whenever you're reading the Bible, always be on the lookout for the purpose clauses like so that, because they often help you understand the logic of what's going on. They're often significant. They're to obey so that they might always prosper and be kept alive. That's the purpose of the law. 
The motivation, the reason for their obedience is for their good. I like the way the ESV translates the Hebrew a little more literally here. Um, it says, for our good always. That's why the law was given. It was given for our good always. Which shows us, doesn't it, that the law itself is a gracious gift. It wasn't given to burden them, but to bless them. It wasn't given to hurt them, but rather to help them. It's not like it started with law, uh, with grace and then descended into a legalistic law. No, the law is a continuation of God's grace to his people. Uh, we see this in the New Testament as well. In John 1, verses 16 to 17, it says, Out of his fullness, God's fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, and then grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So God gave the law through Moses, you can see there in verse 17, and then grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. But how is that described in verse 16? It's grace in place of grace already given. Or as the ESV puts it, it's grace upon grace. It's saying the law given through Moses was already grace. And then there's an even fuller embodiment of grace and truth that comes through Jesus. It's like Christmas morning when you get one gift and there's another and there's just another and another and another. That's a, that's a beautiful picture of what the Old Testament is actually like. God continuing to give out gifts and he saves the best one till last in Jesus. The law is a gift of God's grace. It's for their good. But it's worth asking, how is it actually for their good? Isn't it just giving them a straitjacket, all these annoying commands that are, that are really difficult to follow? How is it actually a gracious gift to them? Well, let's look at two key ways that the law is for their good. I originally started with a list of five. We've only got time to look at two. First one, the law gives guidelines for Israelite society to flourish. We saw one example of this last week when we looked at the Sabbath, the weekly day of rest in Deuteronomy 5 verses 12 to 15. That's not a command to burden or oppress the Israelites. On the contrary, it's to celebrate their freedom from oppression. It's so that they have rhythms of rest that are for their good. And last week, we, we looked more in depth at the Sabbath, and we saw that the, this rest was for rich and poor, for slave or free, for Israelite or foreigner. All alike were to enjoy that great blessing. So it's for them to flourish. Another example is the fifth commandment, to honour your father and mother, in Deuteronomy 5.16. Now, even the wording of the commandment itself draws attention to how this command was for their good. If you've got a Bible with you, have a look, Deuteronomy 5.16. Notice the wording. Honour your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that, there's that purpose clause again, so that you may live long and that it will go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. What's the motivation given for the command? So that it will go well with you. Children should honour parents so that things will go well. Now, some people might think that that sounds a little bit outdated. Like, isn't all authority, whether it's in parents or governments, isn't that intrinsically oppressive? And shouldn't we get rid of that? Shouldn't we get rid of any, any kind of authority and honouring in the family? But no, the best and most up-to-date sociological data tells us that Deuteronomy 5.16 was actually onto something. The single biggest predictor of positive outcomes for a person's life, 
whether that's in mental health, whether that's in crime rates, drug use, education level, life expectancy, you name it. The single biggest predictor of positive outcomes for a person is whether or not they had a healthy family unit as a child. If there's breakdown in the family, the chance of negative outcomes in all kinds of areas shoots through the roof. And this affects not just individuals, but of course society as a whole as well, doesn't it? When children honour their parents, and parents love their children, and mothers and fathers stay faithful to each other, that's no adultery, the seventh commandment. When families actually operate this way, and we all live in a broken world, don't we? So we've all experienced brokenness in this regard in various ways. But when families operate that way, the positive effects are enormous. So that's again an example of how the law gives guidelines for Israelite society to flourish. That's the first big way that the law is for their good. The second is that the law gives motivations that are life-giving. Now, this is strongly connected to the first, but it's also distinct. It's important to notice this. Because God could have made his laws for the good of his people, but not drawn attention to that fact. He could have simply made it as a byproduct. Obey the laws simply because it's the right things to do. Footnote, these laws are for your own benefit, but let's not talk about that. But no, God didn't do that. What we find in Deuteronomy is that God is constantly drawing attention to the fact that these laws are for their good and explicitly uses that as grounds to motivate them. Have a look just in what Caleb read out for us before. Have a look at Deuteronomy 6, chapter 1. See if you can see where this happens. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 to 2. These are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that... You, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. What's the motivation? It's so that they'll fear the Lord, that they'll appropriately reverence him and recognize him as the most important thing and therefore that it will go well with them. It's for their good. Well, have a look in your Bibles at the very next verse. Check it out. Verse 3. Here, Israel, be careful to obey, so that, purpose clause, why? So that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. You see it come up again, don't you? Have another look. Verses 16 to 19. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he's given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and that you may take over this good land from the enemies who are there. Once you look out for it, it's everywhere, isn't it? And it's not just in Deuteronomy 6. In fact, I went looking through all of Deuteronomy and found 22 times that God explicitly draws attention to this and motivates them to obey for their good. And it's very possible that I missed some. You can go have a look for yourself if you want to see if you can find some more. See how God is drawing attention to this? You might think, isn't this giving them bad motives to obey? I mean, isn't this going to make them selfish? You shouldn't they do it just because it's the right thing to do? Well, no, I think God knows what he's doing. God's teaching them that their good is found when he is at the center of their lives. 
He's teaching us that our own good is found when we're willing to lay down control of our own lives and surrender them to God and live in honour of him. That love God and love people isn't just the right way to live, but it's also the best way to live and will lead to our ultimate and lasting good with him. It might involve hardship and suffering in this life, but it's where we find ultimate life. As Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me in living sacrificial lives, seeking the good of others and the glory of God. Lay down your life, lose your life and you will find it. So is it the case that in the New Testament were saved by grace, but in the Old Testament they were saved by works? Well, no, we've seen that that's not the case. We've seen that even in the Old Testament, it was grace and not law that was the fundamental operating principle in Israel's relationship with God. Yes, law and obedience have an important role to play, but not as what brings them into relationship with God or earns their salvation. So it might be helpful to map this out. In the Old Testament, it started with God's gracious initiative to save his people from slavery to Egypt. That's step one. Then step two, God's people respond in loving obedience. That's why he gave them the Ten Commandments, to show what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with him. Now, yes, their obedience matters, but it's not what brought them into relationship with him. Obedience is not primary, it's secondary. It's it's us responding to what God's already done graciously. And this is actually the same dynamic that we see in the New Testament. Step one, God's gracious initiative to save his people, in this case from slavery to sin and death through our Lord Jesus, through his death and resurrection in our place. And then, yes, in the New Testament too, there's an important place for obedience. God's people respond in loving obedience. You know, in John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the word that he's using there is the exact same word that's used in Deuteronomy 5 of the Ten Commandments. Obedience still has an important role to play in the New Testament. It's just not what saves us. We don't obey so that God will love us. God has loved us and so we obey him. The paradigm is completely shifted around. Now, of course, none of us obey perfectly, do we? Uh, We all disobey and God knows that. And so in both the Old and New Testaments, God made provisions for his people to stay in relationship with him despite our disobedience, to deal with our sin. In the Old Testament, what was that provision? What did God give these people in the Old Testament to deal with their sin? Sacrifices. Yeah, the sacrifices of animals, didn't he? So you, none of the Israelites would live perfectly, but then in the, within the law itself, it said, when you sin, here are the provisions, um, you sacrifice an animal. But those sacrifices were only a shadow and a foretaste. They never actually dealt with sin at the root. But in the New Testament, God provides another sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is the reality that those other sacrifices were always pointing to. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, he actually did deal with our sin and disobedience once and for all. So that even when we disobey, even when we fail at this, we can still stay in relationship with God and enjoy the blessing of intimacy with him. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. 
So this means that yes, our obedience still matters, obeying God, loving God and loving others. But we do so motivated not by fear that if we slip up or disobey, we'll be cast out. No, we do so motivated by God's grace towards us in Jesus and all that he's done for us. And motivated by the fact that God's commands themselves are the further expression of his grace towards us, given for our good always. And friends, the more we grasp that God's commands are a gift of grace, that they're a blessing and not a burden, the more it will empower us to obey from the heart. You know, when practically day by day, when you and I are tempted to disobey God, reminding ourselves of God's grace is a life-giving motivation to obey. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been tempting humanity to believe that God's commands are restrictive and burdensome and not for our good. But the more we see through those lies and recognize that his commands are life-giving, the more that will motivate us to obey God in the ins and outs of everyday life. Not out of duty-driven legalism, but as a loving response to God's grace, yes, but also as a continued enjoyment of his grace received through our very obedience to his commands. That that itself is a grace when we say no to sin. So this week, or this semester, when you hear that voice in your ear whisper, cheating on this exam isn't a big deal. You'll be better off if you do. Sleeping with your boyfriend isn't a big deal. You'll be better off if you do. Watching pornography isn't a big deal. You'll be better off if you do. When you hear that whisper, remind yourself, no, God's commands are not an oppressive burden. They are for my good. As God's people on this side of the cross, we are not bound by the letter of the Old Testament law. But as those who have seen the law fulfilled in Christ, we are still called to love God and love people. To deny ourselves and pursue God's honour and the good of others above ourselves. To deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus in a life of self-sacrificial love for others. And as we do, Jesus promises that if we're willing to lose our life now, we will find true and everlasting life in him.